Well, this is our third Sunday in Advent. Advent, for those of you who have not been here the last two Sundays, Advent is a season that we've really not celebrated before, uh, but we've done it in other churches we've been in, and many, many liturgical churches do that. But it comes from a term, a Latin term, which means the coming. And it's all about anticipating Christmas, but of course anticipating Christ coming to the earth and what that means. And we've talked for several weeks about why anticipation is important. God designed us to anticipate things so that we have a, it builds up our desire, our emotions and our, our expectation so that when it comes we're not disappointed and said we're really there to engage and receive the fullness of what God has for us. And that's true in other area, many areas of our life. But I believe God wants that for us this season because there are many distractions out there. Many things to distract us, pressures to distract us, so that as we come to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, that it's, and for many people, it's an obligation. And we go, I'm glad that's over with. And that's not what Jesus, that's not what God intends at all. This is a time for great celebration. It's a time to truly appreciate with our heart what God, the enormity of what God did by sending His son to be born in this earth as a human being and that's why we want to take the time over these four Sundays to really prepare for and to build that up so we started by going back and looking at what God did to to show Israel we used some verses um, of when Jesus was brought as a little baby at eight years, eight days of old to be circumcised and there were two devout people in there. There was Simeon and there was a prophetess, Anna, who'd been waiting for the deliverer. And in that moment, their desires and their waiting and their anticipation was fulfilled. And we looked at, well, why, why, were they, why would they wait so many years so faithfully <clears throat> because they were expecting to see a deliverer. And we went back the first Sunday and we looked at the basic question, why do we need to deliver at all? Why did Israel need to deliver and why do we need to deliver? And we went back and looked at those and I'm not going to go back over those things. But, uh, and, and we realized that with the, at the time Jesus of birth that he was, he is, they were anticipating him. They knew these things. And then we looked last week at, at the beginning of the promise that God made. God made a promise to, to, bring, to send a deliverer. And it's a twofold promise. It's a promise generally begins in, in, right in, Ex- in, in Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve have sinned and have, and have fallen and, and fallen, brought mankind down with him. In 3.15 and 16, God pronounces judgment on Satan on the, through the serpent. And then God announces he's going to send a deliverer who's going to bruise your head. In other words, he's going to be, bring a fatal blow to you, but you're going to bruise his heal, which is the crucifixion. And then we looked at Israel's story, how God formed a special people, and God wanted to demonstrate through that people what He's like and His nature and character. God entered into a covenant with them, the promise to protect them, to provide for them, and to, and to, and to, and to, and to bless them. And they violated the covenant over and over and over and over and over again. And the northern ten tribes of Israel ended up being scattered, and the southern two tribes were taken off into exile for 70 years. And then when the king, the, 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 the final the reigning king of, of, uh, that was, of it was Cyrus, actually, uh, uh, gave them permission to go back. Only a few of them wanted to go back. It was God's method of sorting them out. So they knew, it, the Jews at the time of Christ's birth knew that, that, that Israel had sinned. They knew that they had been dispersed, that they had been basically scattered as a nation. Not only that, but they were under the dominion of Rome. Rome, the Roman Empire had conquered most of the known world other than the Far East. And it was under the hard iron hand of Rome it was referred to. 
And, and they knew every day they got up because they were in the cities there were soldiers, Roman soldiers, garrisons of soldiers marching to the street. And Rome ruled with a method called the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. What they did is they let you, as long as you didn't cause trouble, they let you govern yourself. But the moment you stepped out of line, they came down with that iron hand. This is in part what the Pharisees and Sadducees were so afraid of, that Jesus was stirring up something that Rome would consider to be a rebellion, and that they would clamp down their hand upon him. So that's why when the Pharisees, I didn't mean to get into this, that's why when the Pharisees and the Sadducees brought Jesus to Pilate, we're at Easter now, um, they said, he's saying he's a king. Because they wanted Pilate to think that Jesus was a threat to the Roman peace so that they would execute him. So that was the mentality in this day and back even in the day when Jesus was born. So that's kind of our background. So last week we looked at prophecies primarily in the first part of Isaiah. And those prophecies all talk about a, a deliverer coming. Someone that's going to come. It's going to be born of a woman, that, but a virgin woman. And we saw how that was. God was saying, I'm going to bring a deliverer, but he, I'm bringing him. You're not going to contribute anything except be available. And we saw the promises that the deliverer was going to redeem them, deliver them from their bondages, deliver them from all kinds of things, and he would rule and reign and establish his kingdom. Now today we're going to look at some other prophecies in the second half of Isaiah that describe this, this redeemer and deliverer not as a reigning king, but as a suffering servant. And this is why they missed him when they came. You know, if you're expecting one thing and something else shows up, you can miss it. I've had this experience before where, where, not so much now, but in the smaller church I had before, where I'd be out in the, in the, in the grocery store or out in the, in, in, um, in the uh, uh, hardware store or something like that, in my, in my jeans. I, I do wear jeans. And, and maybe a sweatshirt, and somebody walks right by me, and they said, oh, wait a minute. Pastor, is that you? It's like they think I live in a suit. That's why I took the tie off, to just break that image. And it's like, because they don't, and they don't, they think I live here. Sometimes it feels like it. No, I have another, I have a life and, and a family. And, and, and so, but if you're not expecting something, you, you can, you can miss it. And this is what was going on in that day and age. So, uh, we're going to begin to look at, at, at this. So, the power to deliver, this is what, this is the main point we're going to get into today. God had already promised in the first part of Isaiah, I'm going to send somebody who's going to establish rule and reign. And they took that in terms of what they wanted to see. Oh, this, this, this is good. They took the description that God gave of the deliverer, which was only part of the description, and they took what they wanted because it satisfied a need they thought they had. We've got to be careful because we can try to make God into what we think we need Him to be. what we want Him to be. I want God to just be so gracious and kind that, that whatever I do, He's just going to love and accept. That's kind of where the church is today. You know, and they're even... Well, I'm going to go there, John. Don't, you don't have time to go there. Okay. And He is kind and gracious. But He's also truth. Jesus came and He was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth together. And in there, 
combine together. But if I just want a God who's kind and gracious and gentle and will put up whatever I do, then I'm making God into who I want Him to be. On the other hand, there are people that take the part of God that's, that's righteous and just and, 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 and He requires truth and judgment and, and we, we, we use Him to, to punish other people. God's going to get you. In both of those cases and anywhere in between, we're making God into what we want Him to be and there's a term in the Bible for that. It's called idolatry. So we've got to find out from God who He is. Oh, that went over big. Okay, so here's the point. The prophecies we're going to look at today, and there are only some of them, in Isaiah 40 through 67, show a deliverer who is going to deliver his people and us through suffering in our place. And this is the point. The power to deliver was because he did not act out of his own interest. The power to deliver was because he did not act out of his own interest. Jesus testified about himself right before he was arrested. Satan could find nothing in me. If something bothers you, irritates you, causes you to lose your temper, it's because Satan found something of you in you. Years ago, those when they played boy, this dates me. When they played football, their jerseys were loose. And what they discovered, the linemen discovered, is that when the when the when the defensive team was trying to get through the offensive line, the the offensive guard would just grab their jersey as they went by, and kind of out of sight of the referee, and kind of pull them off balance. So the defending linemen got smart. They used to tie their jerseys behind their back so there was no loose cloth. And then they came up with these nylon things. So, so they could, there's nothing to get a hold of when they come through. And see, when, 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 when you try to move forward and Satan tries to get a hold of you and he's able to grab part of your jersey, what it's called, your flesh, then there's part of you sticking out. Your shirt tail sticking out. There's part of an interest in you that the devil can get a hold of through other people. And Jesus said he couldn't find anything to grab a hold of me because there was nothing about what I did that had anything to do with me. And that was Satan's downfall. Because this is the true nature of God. We'll talk about this later on, not today. But God who, who has the right to come here and demand absolute worship. We sang about His majesty today. He didn't come in that form. He could have come in all His glory and demanded everyone to bow down and to worship Him, to prove who He was. John chapter 1 says, He came unto His own. The world was made by Him and through Him. He came unto His own and His own did not receive Him. Think of that. But he didn't come that way. And Satan couldn't think in those terms. Satan thinks that, all, that he can only deal with people and, and beings that think like he can. So if you're having trouble with Satan, maybe that's because you're thinking a little too much the way he thinks. Hmm. Let me give you a verse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
verse 7, talking about wisdom. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, hidden wisdom, which God ordained before before the ages for our glory. And this is why it wasn't hidden, buried away. It was hidden because people couldn't see it because it didn't line up with the way we understand things work. And I'll show you that in a minute. Verse 8. For which none of the rulers of this age knew. For if they've known it, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. This is what that's saying. Satan knew from Genesis 3.15 on, God was sending somebody to buy back what he just stole. And I don't have time to go through it, but I could trace you through the Old Testament of how he thought certain ones were the deliverer. And that's why he, he tried to destroy them. But when this one comes, and angels announce it from heaven... And stars begin to move and wise men begin to come out of the things. Satan knows something's going on and pretty soon he knows this is the one. Which is why he gets Herod to try to kill every child two years of age and under. I know this is the one. And the battle's on now. But what fooled him is he battled him all the way up to the end. And then it's as if Jesus suddenly at the end takes all his protection off and says, take me. And Satan, out of his greed and pride and anger, fell into the trap. Because he could not imagine that God would come and do what God had promised to do by dying in our place. Because Satan is filled with pride And pride has to assert itself. So he was expecting that Jesus was going to come on a triumphant entry into Jerusalem and take over and rule, and he would oppose him that way. But Satan fell into a trap because what he could not understand, that's what this verse, if they had known what they were doing, Satan never would have crucified the Lord of glory because when he crucified the Lord of glory, his power was broken. Jesus won it back, not by a fight to the death with Satan for Satan's death. Jesus won it back by laying down his life for people that did not deserve it. You and me. And that is the nature of God. That is the nature of God's love. That's the essence of it. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8 It's the essence of it. There's nothing self-seeking at all. And this was the trap. And you're going to see in a little while why this is so important to us. So the verses we're going to look at, after God says in Isaiah, the deliverer is going to come, he's going to establish his kingdom, but his kingdom's different kingdom. It's not a kingdom that's ruled with gold and power and soldiers marching in the streets. It's a kingdom that's ruled with spiritual power and spiritual forces because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. They didn't wrestle against Rome. They wrestled against principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we're going to look at prophecies about what this deliverer would be like. And to do that, we're going to go go all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus, of course, is the story of the children of Israel being delivered. Exodus means leaving. Like exit. 
It's Israel being delivered out of the bondage of Egypt after 430 years. And we're going to, they're going to have the whole verses chapter there. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit. So the setting here is Israel, God's chosen people, have ended up in bondage. I don't have time to go back to why. Ended up in bondage of, Israel, of Egypt, one of the most powerful nations in the world at the time. And they were living under their control and bondage. Pharaoh was using them to build his cities. They were being terribly oppressed. And, and they cried out for a deliverer. And God already had a man prepared, Moses, 80 years into training. And at the right time, when the people cry out, the man to deliver them is ready. And God sends them back. And there's a whole series of things that God takes them through, of tests to get... Finally, he gets Pharaoh to the point, Pharaoh is ready to deliver them, and God's ready to bring judgment on Egypt. There's a power struggle. We don't have time to go through all this. There's really a power struggle between God and Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh means God in Egypt. Pharaohs were gods. They, They were God in Egypt. And God's going to show them there's only one God, and it ain't you. <laughs> That's Egyptian. So God sends Moses to do this. He performs four, ten miracles, ten delivering miracles. And now the last one's going to happen, which is God is going to bring judgment on every firstborn in the land of Egypt. But God wants to deliver His people who are just as idolatrous as the Egyptians are. But God has a covenant with them through Abraham. And God is going to deliver them out of the bondage that they're in. And so, okay, you can start now. Exodus. So this is what's coming. This is God's instructions. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. Shall be the first month of the year to you. Verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father for a household. Let's go down to verse, let's go down to verse 6. And you shall keep it. So they're supposed to take a lamb. They're supposed to, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day. What they were supposed to do is examine the lamb over those 14 days to see whether it was, it was without blemish. Not just physically appears, but was there any, la- any lameness about it? Because this lamb had to be a, a, a lamb without blemish. And then you shall kill it at twilight. Verse 7. And you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and of the lintel of the houses where they eat. And then they were supposed to eat the rest of it. Okay? Um, go down to verse 12. And what's going to happen here, so they were to eat it. They were to roast it, not bake it, not boil it. They were to roast it with fire. There's a reason for that, symbol, symbolic of the, of the cross, of crucifixion. And, and, and that, what's going to happen then, he says, you're going to take the blood and you're going to smear the blood on the doorpost and on the top of, your, of the entryway in, into your homes. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against, look at this, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. So God's going to bring judgment 
on Egypt for their idolatry and their pride. And although Israel was almost as idolatrous and almost as prideful, God had a covenant with them through Abraham that he was going to honor. So when the judgment comes down, notice what God doesn't do. God doesn't say, okay, you're my special people. I'm going to skip you. Okay, I'm just going to look the other way. No, God is a righteous God. And so when God brings judgment, it has to be paid for where there's sin. But here what God's saying is, I'm going to bring judgment on, the first, on Egypt by killing the firstborn of everything that's in Egypt. But, the, but, but, but my people, I will take as a substitute for your death, the death of a lamb that has no blemish. And if you put his blood over your doorpost, I will pass by. I think that's the next verse. Verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Why? Because the price has been paid there. I will see the blood as the payment for your sin. The blood of an unblemished lamb. I will pass over you and the plague shall not destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14. So this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast for an everlasting ordinance. So God's saying, I'm going to use this example that you are to celebrate every year to signify that I passed over your sin by paying for it with the blood of an unblemished lamb. Now this was a prophecy. This was a prophecy to prepare them that the lamb was coming that would pay for their sins once and, once and for all. First John 1, 29, they're not going to put up there. John the Baptist, when he was baptizing people, and one day looks up and here coming through the crowd is Jesus, 30 years of age. And by the Spirit, he recognizes who he is. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So God is saying here, I'm going to deliver you by offering up an unblemished lamb, an innocent lamb that does not deserve to be punished or to be executed, I'm going to offer him up to deliver you. And that is symbolizing that the land, God, when God's deliverer comes, he's not coming as a lion. He's not coming as a king. He's coming as an unblemished lamb to be sacrificed to set us free from the bondage of Satan and the bondage of sin. Isaiah 53. So the point here is God's deliverance comes through the death and suffering of someone that does not deserve to suffer, but suffers in our place so that we might be free. This is the character and nature of God's love. Isaiah 53. Well-known verses for healing, but we're going to look at them from a different perspective this morning. They all knew these verses, but they didn't recognize who they were about. Who shall believe our report? 
To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord refers to his delivering strength and power. This is referring to the deliverer. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For she, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Last week we looked at the root that's going to come of Jesse. As a tender plant. So he's not going to come in some bold strong form, he's going to appear as a tender plant, as a root out of the ground. He has no form of comeliness, no obvious sign about him that this is God. So I appreciate all the paintings when they came out of the Renaissance, you know, that tried to signify that this was the Son of God in His glory that had the halo around Him, but there was no halo around Him. God came... God came to earth as a baby. As a baby. Born the same way you and I were born. His mother had to work to bring him into the world. God reduced himself to an infant that had to be fed or he'd starve, that had to have his diapers changed. Imagine the humility. We'll look at that a little later on. What God did. There was no glory about him. The celebration that was brought to him was not by the religious leaders. They couldn't get this. They couldn't. It didn't compute with them. It was the shepherds in the fields. It was men that came from other parts of the world that God drew there. There was no comeliness about Him. And when we see Him, there's no beauty that we should desire Him. There was nothing about Him that drew us to Him. And said, wow, this must be God. You understand that from age one moment to age 30 years of age, Jesus didn't do miracles. He just lived, grew up just the way you and I did. Now, he didn't sin. He may not have made the greatest tables. We don't know about that. But he didn't sin. He was a real person. But he was still God. It wasn't until he was filled with the Holy Spirit, God's presence in him, that he began to do the miracles. Why? He could have come as the second person of God and done whatever he wanted to do. But what good would that have done us? Because he was a prototype. God came to become a man, to grow up as a man, and then at the appointed time to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit so that he could go forth and minister to people in the power of God so that when you and I come to God, we could become a child of God just like he is. And then we could be filled with the Spirit just as He was so that He could use us to form miracles and work through us just as He did. I can, we can spend a whole series on that. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Those words also mean pains and sicknesses. And we hid, as it were, our face from Him. He was despised and we did not see Him. So the Jews of this day, reading this, having memorized this, 
In their mind, this does not compute with God coming as a deliverer. This must be somebody else. This couldn't be God would never come this way. See, and Satan couldn't get that either. Verse 4. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's also sickness and diseases. We esteemed him, saw him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. See, this is another thing. Smitten of God and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. In other words, this is saying, this, this, this calmly one, this unassuming one came to take upon himself our suffering for sin. Substitute. A suffering substitute. And this is what did not compute with the Jews of his age. Verse 6. But we are like sheep gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way, own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But to the Jews at that date, that doesn't compute. Why would God do that? Why would God deliver us by taking our sin upon himself? That is the ultimate act of love. And Satan could not grasp that. And the religious people, and they still can't today, cannot grasp that. And this is why the most powerful force in the universe is love. Not the love they sing about in ballads, not the love that Barbara Streisand sang about, but this kind of love. Because human love is, I love you because you're lovely. I love you because I want you. There was nothing lovely about us to God. There was nothing lovely about... There was nothing we had to offer Him of any value. And if you think you do, that keeps you from Him. We have to come to the place where we realize I am morally bankrupt of myself when it comes to standing before God. And only then can we receive the grace that God has offered to us. Okay. Let's go down to... um, to verse 7. That's the next verse. Okay. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Remember when he stood before the, the, the authorities, the, the Jewish authorities, first of all? He didn't answer. They made accusations, and when they couldn't come up with anybody to accuse him of anything, they paid somebody to lie about him, and Jesus never answered them. He stood before them, knowing he was falsely accused, and he did not defend himself. He didn't argue back. He went there with the purpose of taking whatever they did to him, because they was taking it for you and me. The only time he ever answered Pilate was when he defended God, the Father. When Pilate says, don't you understand, man? I have the power of life or death of you. And Jesus said, you don't have any power that hasn't been given to you by my Father. But he never defended himself. He was, he was, he was, he was falsely accused before the, the, the uh, Jewish authorities. Then when he was taken over to the Romans, they knew how to be cruel. 
He was taken downstairs and he was, he was mocked. They pulled his beard. They took his robe off of him. They put a purple robe on him. They worshipped him mockingly. Imagine the irony. This is the man that gives them the breath to say words to him that they use against him. That's true of us today. They mocked him. They spit on him. And they said, if you're a king, we're going to make a crown for you. And it's a crown of thorns. And they pressed it down on his head. This king of kings, they put a crown of thorns on it and mocked him. And he opened not his mouth. Satan couldn't grasp that. The religious leaders couldn't grasp that. The human mind, unrenewed to what God's like, cannot grasp that. When I was a child, my grandmother used to take me to, to Easter, to Good Friday services. And they would go through the seven words of the cross, and I would say, Gee, why didn't you come off the cross? Why did you? And everybody would have known you. I didn't understand. He wasn't here to prove who he was. This is the essence. This is the essence of being a disciple and following him. It's not about you and me. It's about Him. Verse 10. It pleased the Lord God to bruise His Son and to put Him to grief. That means also make sick. When you make his soul an offering for sin, you shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days. That's the church coming out of it. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It pleased God to bruise his son. That sounds like child abuse. No, 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 no. God did that for you. For me. It didn't please him in the sense it gave him pleasure It pleased Him in the sense that you were worth it. You were worth it. Not because of any value in yourself, intrinsically in you. You were worth it because that's God's character and nature, how He sees you, His creation. Filthy, dirty, prideful, self-centered. He looked through the ages and saw you and me. I'm willing to pay the ultimate price. It pleases me. It satisfies me because I know by paying that price I can redeem you back out of your sin and your death and I can have you as my own. You are, verse 11, and he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. I want you to look to your right. Look at the person to your right. Now look to the person to your left. Now look at each other. Take a selfie. No. You're looking at the labor of his soul. You are the labor of his soul suffering. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. 
Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he's poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The prophecy there is because he suffered, because he's substituted himself for us, because he paid the ultimate act of love, unselfish giving of himself, I'm going to exalt him. And we'll see that in a few minutes. Because Israel was looking for the conquering deliverer, they missed the sacrificial lamb. Let's go to John 11. This is one of the most amazing scriptures. Of course, I used to teach on the tabernacle. And there's a book I wrote in there a number of years ago on it. I would probably make do something a little different if I rewrote it. But this is the high priest Caiaphas. Jesus had been brought before him as the lamb, silent lamb, being prepared for the sacrifice. Eleven forty-nine. So he'd been brought before him, and they're trying to think, what do we do? Because this man does great signs and miracles. What are we going to do with him? The people are going to get upset. The people think they don't know what he is. They think he's a great prophet. So they, notice they're not concerned for what's right. They're concerned for themselves in their power position. What's going to happen here? These people, if we just, if we just execute him, you know, what are they going to think? They're going to, they're going to think we've done something wrong. And then Caiaphas, the high priest, stands up and says this. Then one of them, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, Don't you know anything at all? Verse 50. Nor don't you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Stop there. This goes back to what I taught you a few minutes ago about Roman rule. Caiaphas saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. you're missing the point. Whatever the people think doesn't matter. Okay? It's better for us to execute this one man so that Rome doesn't come against us and take our freedom away from us. So he's saying it's better that we execute this man regardless of who he is. Wasn't he believed he was the Messiah? It's better. We're going to sacrifice this one man unjustly. It's not just, it's not right, but it's expedient. Oh, I never saw that before. He's not saying it's right. He's not saying it's just. He says expedient. Expedience is always what's best for you. He said it's expedient that this one man should die no matter who he is so that the nation should live. Because by getting rid of him, we're going to make Rome feel happy. And they won't come in and bring their iron fist down. Now look at the next verse. Now he did this, did not say this on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. If you you haven't taken uh, the tabernacle course or read that book or maybe some other books, what you may not understand is this. Under the Old Testament system of sacrifices, a lamb was brought unblemished and it had to be observed for the 14 days. And then the, high, the priest had to declare that this lamb was fit to be the lamb that would be sacrificed. What Caiaphas does not know is he is performing the God-ordained role of a high priest declaring that this man is 
sufficient to be sacrificed as the lamb for the freedom of... He, but he didn't know he was doing that because he didn't recognize that this was the lamb of God because he could not think in those terms because he had a carnal fleshly mind that was only concerned with himself. By the way, that's why he appeared before Pilate because Pilate had to deem under the legal government that he was fit to be, a, be the, the sacrifice. See, God, God oh, I can't go into that. God orchestrated this whole thing. I'm telling you, God's more in control than you think he is. As most Jews did not recognize the deliverer when he came, and many still don't. I worked in the law firms I worked with, and almost everyone I worked very closely with, with, with Jewish lawyers. And, and in, in some of the cases, especially in the last firm I was in, some of them were very devout Jews. Um, and, and I attended one of their, 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 one of the rabbis had a little, like a, we would call it a Bible study, they call it Torah study. You bring in your lunch and you'd bring something for him too. And, and they'd sit around and they would discuss the Torah, the law. And I'm sitting around and they're talking about the deliverer and they're talking about everything. Don't you understand? And there's a scripture that says in Second Corinthians, I think it was a veil over their eyes. And I could see it. It's obvious to me. And I began to talk to one of my Jewish partners who's a, who's a devout Jew. I said, you understand that, that I'm a Jew too? He looked at me. I said, I'm a Jew by faith in, in Christ. And he looks at me and he understood. We weren't mad at each other. I said, the only difference between you and me is I believe Jesus is the Messiah. You're still waiting for him. Is that I know he's the Messiah. Not only that, his mother, Mary, was Jew. She knew he's the Messiah. Peter, I didn't want to go there. No, don't go. So, the Jews did not recognize he was the deliverer because he did not come in the form that they wanted him and therefore expected him to come. But here's the problem. Many Christians do the same thing. We have a way we want Him to come to us on our terms. And so we miss what He wants to be in you, for you, and through you. And this has been a big change in my life this year. Christians... Many, in many cases, don't recognize what Jesus wants to do in you, for you, and through you, because it's not what you want or what you expect. So how does this apply to us? Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. Now, many of us that came through the charismatic renewal and the word of faith, you know, I have the mind of Christ. Do you have the mind of Christ? I've got the mind of Christ. Do you have the mind of Christ? We want the mind of Christ. Well, let's find out what the mind of Christ is. Let's see what the Bible says the mind of Christ is. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. So this is the mind of Christ. This is his way of thinking. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, let's, what that's saying is, kind of backwards, is 
For Christ, for Christ to claim that he was equal with God the Father wasn't stealing something. If you commit robbery, it's because you took something that wasn't yours. So if you take something that's what not yours, it's called robbery. For Jesus to say he was equal to God was not robbery. What's that saying? Because he is equal with God. John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's John saying there that, that, that in the beginning was the Word. I don't know. That's the complete expression of who God is. That's the second person of the God. Let's cut to the chase. God is made up of three different personalities. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Don't ask me to explain. I don't understand it. Nobody does. Okay? I have some insights into it. You do. But you only have to see them to do it. God's so much bigger than... I'm going to so many different directions. I've got to finish. Okay. Where was I before you interrupted me? Okay. <laughs> so, this, the, there's God the Father, but there's the second person of the Godhead, which is the Son, and John calls Him the Word, Logos. He's the complete expression of the Father. To put it in human terms, He's the chip off the old block. You've seen Me, you've seen the Father, He said. All right? And then, all things were created by Him, and all things were created through Him. Apart from Him, nothing was made that was made. So everything that existed, the Son created for the Father. It's the Father's will, but the Son carries it out. He's the overseer of it. He makes sure it happens. And the Holy Spirit is the agent that physically carries it out. In the beginning, before there was these three people, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. And then verse 14 says, And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that's when he got the name Jesus. Amen. Jesus is the name that became to him when God became a man. So when he says, Paul says, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, it's because he is equal with God. But look at verse 7. This was the mind of Christ. But he made himself of no reputation. That doesn't really get it, what it says in the Greek language. The word to make yourself of no reputation is a Greek word that means to empty yourself out. It's the Greek word kenosis. It's an emptying out of all of His attributes as God, all of His glory, all of His power, all of His, all of his, all of his authority. He emptied himself of... He did it to himself. This is humbling. You and I can't begin to imagine that until we get to heaven and see what he's like. But if you want a glimpse, read Revelation. Starting in chapter 4. We saw a thing about his majesty. But, but only your spirit can begin to grasp that. Our minds can't compute it. He emptied himself of those things, taking the form of a bond servant, not a reigning king. Not an army sergeant, a general that's going to take back from the devil what he took from me. As a bond servant coming in the likeness of men. Don't get hung up on likeness. That just means he took on flesh like you and I do. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the mind of Christ as he took all that he was entitled to, all of his rights and privileges, and he chose to lay them aside and come in a very humbling, servant manner 
and coming in the likeness of men. Verse 8. Being found in the appearance of men. He was a man. Some religions believe this is he's saying. He really wasn't man. He was man. He lived, he bled, he died. He humbled himself even more and became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That is so pregnant with revelation in there of, of humility. Just to take on the, a man, to have to go to sleep at night, to get tired. God, now he's got, he's got to eat. He's got to go to the bathroom. Well, he couldn't hold it for 33 and a half years. That would be supernatural. And not just become a man. That is so far below his dignity. To put up with us. And you can hear it him sometimes. How long do I have to put up with these genera- this generation? And that's his own staff. Peter, why did you doubt walking on water? He couldn't. Oh, John, let's go down. But he came, he humbled himself even more to be obedient to the, obedient to the point of death. He came to die. And not just any death, the death of a cross. I don't have time to get into it today, but it was one of the most cruel, long-suffering methods of execution ever designed. The Phoenicians designed it. And the Romans perfected it. So the average person on a cross would take three days to die in agony. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted. Remember we read in Isaiah 53, verse 12, God, exalt, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the mention of every name, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth. Well, let's go on. And every tongue shall declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus came... Stuck in there is every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That's Satan's territory. Why? Because he's the Son of God? No. Because God exalted him because he humbled himself and served us. The more you humble yourself, the higher God can exalt you. Now, how does this relate? Oh, Lord, how does this relate to us? In the Sermon on the Mount, it's a troubling message. Let's just go to, let's go to Matthew 5.38. Jesus says some tough things in here. And he's talking to his staff. This is not preached to the multitude. It's a Sermon on the Mount. But if you read the context, he's already, spoke, done, he's already healed the multitudes. He withdraws up on the mountain and his disciples follow him. He said, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Verse 39. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you in the right cheek, turn the other to him also. I've heard that explained away. I've explained it away at times. That's what he says. Verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you take away your tu- and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Don't come to me for legal advice on that one. <laughs> I've had people do that. Verse 41. Whoever compels you to a mile, go with him too. Verse 2, 42. Give to him who asks from you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Verse 43. 
I wish that were the motto of some bad... Never mind. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This is insanity. He can't mean that. But isn't this exactly what God did? Isn't that what he's been looking for? Exactly looking at? Didn't God... God didn't give an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We'd all be puddles of oil, fried on the spot before we got to be 12 or 15 years of age. What did God do? He He wasn't trying to promote Himself or protect Himself. He cared only about you and me. And to do that, whatever it cost, He took our sin upon Himself, suffered the consequences of that so that we might be delivered set free he did not retaliate because when we retaliate we're promoting ourselves. God's dealt with me just driving get behind somebody in the left hand lane when I'm trying to get to church on time and God, the devil sent somebody just to get in my way Don't they know I'm the pastor of a church and I got, they're in my they're in my way. So I pray for them. Get them out of my no. <laughs> Lord, may they have a peaceful drive. Bless them. Bless them. Bless them. Bless them. Look at this. So hate you. For those who hate you. Those who spitefully use that's somebody who says, look, Tim. I'm going to purposely go out of my way to use you and, 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 and we're supposed to pray for them? Yeah. Romans 12. Verse 17. We didn't go on there, but Jesus says, so that you may be like perfect, like my Father's perfect. You may be sons of His. Romans 12. Back up. Verse 17. Repay no one. Repay no one. Repay no one. To repay is you're giving back something that they deserve. To repay says... You deserve something. And God's saying, repay no one evil for evil. But you don't understand what they did! God says, repay no one evil for evil. No one. No one. Your neighbor, your nasty neighbor whose dog does his business in your yard. I've got to be careful. I'm not one of those now. Now. <laughs> That dog's so small, you never mind. (laughs) Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. That means believe the best of everybody. Look for it. 
And God will show it to you. And even if it's not there, you're believing it may begin to draw something out of them. This is, this is, this is what God is like. This is what God's done with you and God's done with me. He never looked at me and said, whoa, that guy would be a great preacher. No, if he, this is God working in me, whatever's happening. Verse 18. If possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God saying, Balancing out the scale of justice is my business, not yours. You know, God's not quite so concerned about who's right. I don't find anywhere in the Bible, and this I'm talking to married couples especially, where God commands you to be right. But all over the place, He commands you to love one another as you love yourself, as God has loved you. We get, we get focused on some issues, like I talked about earlier. You know, bad habits and things like that. But the things that mean more to God than those, and I'm not, again, licensing anybody, is the attitudes of our heart. There's been holiness movements where people just, you know, buns on the top of their head and no makeup and no paint on the barn and, and you know, just, you know, just, and they're rotten inside. They're full of anger and jealousy and envy and strife. And to God, that's infinitely more offensive because it's totally against His character, against God's nature. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Verse 20. Therefore, if your enemy is, if your enemy, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Do something good for that person that just... You watch what it does for you. Watch what it does for you. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Not alcohol, give him a drink. <laughs> For in doing so, you shall peep coals of fire on his head. Now, I've heard that taught two ways. One is that, you know, he'll just get under conviction and he'll get angry. But there was also a custom in those days that they carried the coals to start, because they were nomadic, carried the coals to start a fire on, a bas- on the thing on their head. And what it means is you're giving him the ability, you're giving him warmth, you're giving him heat. Verse 21. This is a motto to live by. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When you get back at somebody, when you protect yourself, when you, when you do anything that's based on yourself, you're being overcome by the evil. but overcome evil with good. I heard somebody the other day say that, that, that envy, jealousy, strife, any of those things, is like, is like putting acid in a container or, 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 or bad food in a container. The only thing that contaminates is the container. But here's the ultimate point. God's called us to walk the way He's walked. 
If we're going to be his disciples, Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You can't follow him unless you deny yourself. And see, all of this is about self. You don't know what they did to me. That's self. You don't know how that hurts. That's self. You know what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is taking up your cross. Because what I'm saying when I forgive somebody is I'm saying, what you've done to me may be wrong. Whether you did it intentionally or not. Not, not wrong, you did, but I'm using an example. may have been wrong. But I'm going to bear the hurt and the scar of that to set you free from the guilt of what you did. Now, you, there's a martyrdom you can do, and that's still selfish. I don't have time to get into all that. But the essence of God's character is nothing's based on Himself. It's all based on whatever I've got to pay, whatever I've got to do, and I'll die to myself that you may be free. And the church today is missing Jesus because we're looking at a Jesus and what He's going to do for us. And Jesus will bless us, He'll heal us. We're looking what He's going to do for us when He's looking for people that are willing to deny themselves take up their cross and follow Him. Because when you've denied yourself and take up your cross, Satan can find no place in you. He can't do anything to stop you. You're the most formidable threat to His kingdom because none of His schemes can work on you because they're all based on you. And when you've denied yourself, He has to deal with Christ in you alone because there's none of you left to deal with. And this is where we're going next year. God's going to teach us to go there. Jesus said, come, follow me. And we're going to become a church of Christ followers. A church of Christ followers. A church of... Wherever that takes us, that's where we're going to go. Because we're going to be a church of Christ followers. Let's pray. Father, some of these things that we read in your word are hard. Because they challenge our carnal mind. They challenge our natural thinking. But the spirit that you've caused to put in us, to birth in us, Lord, he bears witness with the truth when we hear the truth. So, Father, I'm asking you by your spirit that as you've been working in my life, that you would begin to work in each one of our lives, that when we first of all see the glory of the price you were willing to pay simply because you loved us, and that we would begin to take on your nature and your character. Your Spirit's been put in us to enable us to do that. What's impossible with man is possible with God. I pray, Lord, for everyone in this congregation, not just here today, that will hear that it's within the sound of my voice, that they will hear your call. They will hear your call. I'm not talking about to ministry. I'm talking to follow Jesus. That together we may become Christ followers. Wherever that may take us and whatever it might cost. Fill us with your spirit to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.